Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host, and thanks for joining in. So everybody is talking about AI lately, right? What it can and can't do, what the ethical implications are. I mean, I guess we're all really wondering is if AI robots will replace us or kill us, or at least take our jobs. <laughs> um, some folks are already calling for us to slow down in the push for AI because they are so worried about what can happen. They think it might destroy us. Uh, but as someone I follow on Twitter pointed out, we have enough tools right now to destroy ourselves, right? Like we don't, we don't need AI to destroy ourselves. We're good. We got all that. Um, and we might destroy ourselves with what we have now. I mean, just thinking about how we treat each other and all the tools we have, um, some could call it naive to think we won't do it. There was some recent media buzz around a published study showing that chat GPT, basically an AI tool, um, came close to the passing threshold on the three steps or parts of the United States medical licensing exam, uh, the USMLE. Now these are long, hard exams medical doctors need to take um, and they have to pass them if they want to practice medicine. So basically chat GPT like passed the licensing exam or came very close. Here to talk about the study is one of its authors and researchers, Dr. Victor Seng. He is a lung doctor and medical director and executive vice president of Ansible Health, which is a digital company and AI enhanced medical practice focused on respiratory diseases. And he'll tell us more about his work in the podcast. Uh, for the chat GPT study, he will start with the basics and then tell us what they hypothesized, how they conducted the study, results, and probably most importantly, what are some of the broader use cases and ethical or philosophical concerns when it comes to using AI in healthcare? Cool? Okay, so let's connect to Dr. Singh and hear what he has to say. Give me a few seconds here, guys. All right. Okay, so do you want to start? Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for having uh, having me on, Dr. Eats. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can wait till that's passed. It's it's gone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I also have a uh, I have a, a canine co-host as well. You do? She, I do, yeah. <laughs> I have a canine co-host. Uh, okay, everyone, we're connecting with Dr. Victor Singh, and we're going to talk about um, <laughs> AI and stuff like that. But first, I want to hear about your co-host. What kind of dogs? You, uh... Well, who knows what's in this dog? But uh, her name what? is Ellie, which is short for Ellie Belly. Ellie and, Belly. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Barnaby's I, uh... right here next to me, too. Barnaby, that's right. Yeah, and whenever I go to record a podcast, he knows and immediately goes right there it's it's interesting it's like oh okay it's podcast time i need to yeah. you know get in my spot um they so. have amazing sensitivity and uh to context cues it's, it's astounding they really so, do yeah. they really do um and he was at whole foods this morning uh yeah he he pulls me there and then stands in front of the meat deli like they all know him at the counter now and i'm like you know everyone loves him i'm like 
<laughs> I um, guess we're here for hamburgers again. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you have a really good dog ambassador. <laughs> I, I do. I do. He's like, yeah. that's why I say he's like the chief. Well, I call him the CEO, the chief everything officer, but he's like the right. chief marketing <laughs> officer. He just pulls, yeah. he pulls me into conversations that I otherwise would not be having. So uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to talk about the study chat GPT and um, how it, well, basically passed the United States medical licensing exam, which is one of the hardest exams, um, all the portions. I, you know, I just remember how long that like step one and step two were like eight hours or something like that. It's, it's a rigorous exam, but first, can you tell us more about you? What do you do? What's your research interest, um, hobbies, whatever you want to tell us. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on Dr. Eeks. I'm Victor Sang. I am a a practicing pulmonologist, internist, and intensive care physician. I'm based in Atlanta. Um, my background was essentially in academic medicine. Um, I uh, doing you know all of those you know three pillars of academia: research and teaching and running clinical services. And about a couple years ago, I was recruited to a, uh, a Ansible Health, which is a virtual first, but not virtual only care delivery uh, uh, organization and medical practice that is tailored for patients with severe chronic lung disease. Part of the uh, shift was kind of a, you know, a lot of, a lot of my research was in uh, drug discovery, uh, basic science and translational science, and a growing frustration with having increasingly precise um molecular therapeutics to target certain subsets of disease, but really no precise way to deliver basic care for patients with chronic conditions. And so had a career pivot that has taken me in this direction. And a huge part of, of large-scale care delivery is leveraging information systems and informatics and um, our sort of internet of connected things in medicine to do scalable um, healthcare. So that's how I got into this space. That's how you got into this space. And you're a lung lung doctor. So was it, was COVID a busy season for you? COVID was. I was, um, you know, involved in uh, the intensive care unit during the first and second waves of COVID. Uh, and that was really a kind of a, I think, a formative time for me, both personally and also professionally, because, you know, um, we didn't really know much about how to treat this illness. There was a lot of uh, competing and conflicting information coming in from both academic and um, lay sectors. And so we we're, you know, trying to apply the best um, evidence-based practices for a completely new condition in the intensive care units for patients with acute respiratory failure. And it turns out, you know, most of the stuff we learned about acute respiratory distress syndrome and, um, diffuse pneumonia, all of those things, uh, they, uh, applied and with COVID just a few thematic variations. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, all the basics still apply, but there's a few, you know, disease specific interventions. Uh, so that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have, I was diagnosed with asthma a while ago, but I remember just trying to like sort through the conflicting 
uh, stuff coming out, like oh, it uh, makes asthma worse. It doesn't make asthma worse, blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> yeah, when you start looking at large cross-sectional data sets at all, and, and I think you know this as all the signals get mixed up and yeah. diluted out. Yeah, it, 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 yeah it, it's not easy. Um, okay, but let's talk about something that's a little more lighthearted, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> it depends, I guess, where we take this. But, um, yeah. um, you know, so chat GPT, is that what you guys call Okay, chat GPT. We know it's been in the news a lot lately. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking not everybody who listens to this podcast may even know what, you know, what this is. So can we start there? Can you just tell us what is this? You know, why are people talking about it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it is basically, you can think of it as autocomplete on the most exuberant steroids imaginable. <laughs> so it's a predictive language model, essentially. So given some words, it will predict the next word in the sequence to generate language, just as uh, in a human-esque language. Um, so, but instead of having, you know, 10, 15 different choices, like on a drop down menu for an autocomplete, there's literally uh, billions, if not trillions of possibilities that this navigates using probability chains. Um, so ChatGPT is what is called a large language model. And essentially, that's exactly what I described. It's uh, predicting word sequences based on the relationship between um, words and their frequencies and their context. Um, where it, I think, really stands out from more you know, primitive versions of language models is a couple of things. One, um, it has been further refined with reinforcement human learning, which means that human supervisors actually looked through some of the outputs and rewarded the model for more human responses and punished it for more artificial sounding responses. The other thing, that makes it different is um, it uh, um, has a very uh, advanced long-range dependency capability, meaning it, it can hold attention on a particular subject and keep that attention even though several paragraphs have passed, which is one of the main challenges that has stymied language models. Um, uh, knowing that red in paragraph four refers to the color of, you know, a person's hair in paragraph one. Um, so that generative language capacity and long range dependency is um, uh, a major innovation of these late transformer models, chat GPT included. Okay, so and AI, right? Is it is it okay? Just this is artificial intelligence. Okay. And, and this is based off of like published all everything that's published out there. Uh, just, just for folks to kind of wrap their head around it, who may not be um, up on AI, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what it is, is it's trained. That's the word. Trained. Like, okay. It's fed a lot of different uh, sources uh, from the public, public domain. Um, so this is basically English web pages, Wikipedia, all of English Wikipedia, uh, uh, tens of thousands of books, if not more. It's something called the book corpus. So um, Shakespeare, Hemingway, 
It's also fed um, certain social media chat logs. Um, it's fed, you know, uh, public facing uh, resources on the web, um, including in, in terms of medicine, public facing medical websites like WebMD. So it's crawling in all of the internet, basically, and a corpus of English literature um, and taking every single piece of data yeah. uh, and then putting it inside it, the server. And the server is somewhere in California. Okay. I have this image of like a Pac-Man, like going through, yes. <laughs> going through all these sites <laughs> and just eating all this information. Um, yeah. Getting smarter and smarter. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, the debatable part but oh, it's, okay. de it's definitely getting uh it's getting bigger it's getting bigger yeah. that's true <laughs> it's getting bigger okay um and anybody can use this it's is it free to use or is there a paid version anybody can use it right right now anybody can use it um they actually i think it was a shrewd and bold uh, marketing slash business decision to let the public uh, play with it, both to, I think, uh, create virtuous cycles of feedback so the company could learn how the citizenry would actually interact with AI, but also to kind of whet our appetites for what it could do. Uh, and then I think about a month ago, there there's a ChatGPT Pro, which is a subscription-based service Um and uh, as I understand, it actually has profoundly fast uptake. Um, that people service, are people are paying for it. Yeah, I'm I'm paying for it. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's a big deal because people don't want to pay for stuff today. Um, Good point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it does grant certain, I think, uh, uh, privileges. So uh, faster response time, a little bit higher in the queue. Um, okay. and earlier access to some of the the newly released features. So. Okay. And this is what the kids are using. Uh, I feel like my nephew or someone in my family used this to write like an essay that he had to do for school. Is that like when we're talking about different uses? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it can, it can pump out a pretty decent expository five paragraph essay, which, you know, and it's original. Um, or it, it which is original. Wow. Okay. Now, you know, this becomes like a philosophical argument of what is what is original. I, mean, I think it it parallels the remix music conversation. You know, that's a perennial talking point. Um, what really is originality? Uh, if you if you you know say originality is any permutation or string of words that has not ever appeared before or it was never spoken in that order before by any human being or written by any human being then yes it is original that's a good point i i also i often think of that original thing so like oh i had an original thought and then when you really think about it you're like probably not an original thought there's probably somebody out there right now thinking it or who else someone else thought it but just didn't write it down or make it public but you know but then somebody gets credited with the original. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Okay. So how did you, you're like, okay, chat GPT, cool. Now you're thinking about the USMLE, the United States medical licensing exams. There's three steps. How did you 
connect the two and you're like, oh, I wonder if it can, I wonder how well it will do on the USMLE. How did that come yeah, up? It, um, and to be clear, we're not the only group that connected the two. Actually, several others um, have reproduced their findings and uh, probably were investigating the same question concurrently. Uh, there's a group at Yale and a group because at Stanford. there's no original but... thoughts. There we go. Well, uh, yeah, touche. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's like a kind of a shared convergence. People are on that, you know. Um, so I... Uh, one of my roles is uh, as medical director and a vice president of, of Ansible is to evaluate any new um, protocol, technology, finding medication um, that may affect patient care. Um, and that includes AI tools. This one uh, was really bubbling up through the, the you know, our, our, very tech-minded clinicians. We have a critical mass of really tech-savvy and uh, <laughs> progressive clinicians that are always telling me about different uh, different things on the horizon. And so I heard about ChatGPT in I mean, late November, early December of 2022. And uh, um, it just seemed like this was a quantum leap ahead of where language models had been previously, you know, um, it displayed this virtuosic ability to handle phrases and words and sound extremely human. So the next step, of course, before bringing it into a patient care arena is to assess it, you know, interrogate how good is this model? What can it do? Where does it fail? The, and this is a standard method in AI research um, is to assess it against a benchmark. This benchmark is known as MedQA, which is a... Uh, established and well-acknowledged way of assessing AI accuracy. The interesting thing about ChatGPT is it also renders explanations. You can ask it, why do you think that? Why did you choose this answer? Why didn't you choose another answer? I think you're wrong. You can take an antagonistic adversarial approach and challenge it. You can engage ChatGPT in chain of thoughts reasoning. So, can you think one step further? What might be a side effect of this medication if you chose it? Um, and unlock different parts of the network and get different responses. So, in addition to seeing just raw accuracy on the medical licensing exam, um, we also looked at: Does it reason, or does it, you know, produce a simulacrum of reasoning? through its explanations. And this is a concept called explainability in AI, because one of the, uh, I think, central tenets of, okay. of these models is, can we, can we humans understand why it's saying what it is saying? Can we trust it? Does it map onto the way we approach a clinical problem? Um, so the short answer to your question is, we wanted to benchmark ChatGPT against a validated exam a very difficult professional level exam um, that is notoriously difficult and takes thousands of hours to prepare for. And then step two is investigate how it, the explainability aspect, can we trust its responses? Can it explain itself? Okay. So you had, you, you got questions, right? And you made sure that these these questions weren't hundreds of questions. 
and these questions weren't indexed on Google. Was that important? That is important um, because we knew that uh, ChatGPT ingested like a Pac-Man all publicly available uh, information up till about late September 2021. And so if we had chosen an exam set that was potentially seen or crawled into the training data for ChatGPT, uh, it would invalidate the results. You want to show ChatGPT something it's never seen before. So we actually took questions out of an exam that was uh, after the closure of its training in late 2021. This exam was from June 2022. Now you also removed images, right? Because there's, I remember there was a lot of, you know, there, there's questions with, you know, pictures of like, I don't know, a broken bone or graphs or something. So you took those out. Okay, so yes. chat, chat, chat GPT doesn't do those yet. The version of chat GPT, GPT 3.5, does not handle image input. Um, soon to come versions of GPT-4, which was just released last week, uh, will, um, but, um, and I actually, it's is interesting because images are what they're radiographs, EKGs, clinical photographs, medical photography. And, you know, that's something called narrow AI or computer vision, narrow computer vision, which is, um, can it do a better job than a radiologist, for example, can this uh, algorithm read an EKG better than a cardiologist. And there is now a preponderance of published literature showing that a well-trained, um, narrow machine learning model can do that. So um, I'd be really interested to see how it would perform once we feed, you know, an adulterated exam with all images included. Um, okay, so can you just give us a quick summary about how you set the study up and and then talk a little and then we can talk a little bit about what you mentioned uh things you were looking for but I just want to talk a little more about accuracy concordance and insight just yeah so how did you set up the study so th that's exactly right um first step was to look to see accuracy so step one does it get the answer correct or not and there's actually uh three ways to do that at least three ways um, <clears throat> you can, and this is called prompt engineering, essentially how we pose the question to JetGPT. We can pose the question in an open-ended format. So here's a patient with XYZ symptoms and findings. What do you think is going on? And, or give me, you know, a, a list of possible diagnoses in order of likelihood. That's very open-ended. That might, uh, recapitulate how uh, somebody might interact with it in a free, in a sort of in a free and unrestrained um, uh, setting. Just I'm just dialoguing with ChatGPT and trying to get some ideas. There's also the standard format, which is multiple choice. So here's a patient with XYZ findings, which of the following diagnoses is most likely A, B, C, D, E, sometimes F, G, H. <laughs> Um, you can then just uh, take the answer and match it up against an answer key, score it. And then finally, there's um, sort of asking JetGPT to justify and defend why it chose a certain answer and why it didn't choose every other answer. And 
it's known in AI research that you will get different uh, performance when framing the question in those different ways. When when uh, um, asking a model to defend itself versus eliciting open-ended response. Okay, so it'll be a little different. Okay, they'll be different. Yeah, and it and that it's actually not trivial. Um, the difference it's not it's it, it can be up to five to ten percent gain. Um, traditionally, asking a language model to justify itself improves its accuracy. You know, essentially asking it to think a little bit harder, and that's roughly what we saw in the paper. Okay, so that's accuracy. That's accuracy. Um, concordance, concordance is the idea of of does it stay consistent within itself? Um, and I wish I could show you some examples of like really concordant and discordant responses, but um, essentially, when reading through an explanation produced by ChatGPT, can I does it hang together? Is it contradicting itself? Are there some forget if it's right or wrong? You know, if it's right, is it refuting every other wrong answers? And is there anything in the explanation that seems to uh, negate? The conclusion, which would cause confusion in somebody who is uh, potentially an ingenue or um, hasn't seen the material before. Okay. So it, it gets to the ability of can it handle negation? Does it, uh, is the logic intact within the output? Okay. Okay. And this is, this would be for when you actually know the answer to something. I mean, because sometimes, you know, there's uncertainty that that's the, the right answer is that's exactly else. right yeah right okay and a uh, correct response can be concordant it could also be discordant an incorrect response can be concordant or discordant right 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 okay okay right. that i understand um and then the third the third on... concept is yeah is the insight concept insight yeah yeah um that is essentially is this just a parrot um so there's a kind of a meme in language model AI research, which is this idea of a stochastic parrot, kind of a, um, it's just regurgitating um, words and phrases the model yeah. has seen before. So yeah. can ChatGPT teach me something? Or can it refresh something that's locked away in my dusty mind palace somewhere? <laughs> can it draw a new and important connection between um, non-obvious uh, findings or concepts? So basically, but you, you don't want to say think, or that, that's not. <laughs> I'm going to show you something. I'm just going to pull this up so we can talk about it, because I think this is okay. uh, where it can come really alive. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, share this with you visually with screen sharing. I'm going to kind of read a prompt to you. Okay. This is literally... Um, the first time I used ChatGPT, <laughs> this is the, I was actually validating a question for one of the uh, licensing exams, actually, and I just fed it in and then see what it says. So it says, <laughs> a 69-year-old man comes to the clinic due to squeezing pressure in his chest and neck that occurs with walking. He has a history of hypertension and type 2 diabetes. The patient is an ex-smoker with 20-pack year history. His coronary angiogram shows extensive atherosclerosis and nearly total occlusion of uh, left anterior descending artery. And I'll translate this into kind of, uh, uh, I'll, I'll take the medical ease out of it uh, on the second Plain pass. Plain language, he's not doing so hot. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Further testing shows normal resting left ventricular ejection fraction with no regional wall motion abnormalities. The question is, the absence of myocardial necrosis and scarring despite vessel occlusion in this patient is best explained by which of the following features of the occluding lesion? And choice A, active inflammation, B, lipid-rich core, C, low calcium content, D, osteolocation, E, slow growth rate, F, thin fibrous cap. So now I'm going to kind of laymanize this uh, a little bit. So it's discussing an elderly gentleman that comes in with chest pain. It's concerning for cardiac chest pain. He has a lot of risk factors for heart disease, including high blood pressure and diabetes and smoking. Um, and he underwent a cath, basically uh, looking at the arteries of the heart with dye, which showed uh, a lot of narrowing, severe narrowing of one of the main arteries of the heart. But the heart's still functioning fine. And the question is why? And I'm now going to tell you what ChatGPT said. It says, quote, the absence of myocardial necrosis and scarring despite vessel occlusion in this patient is best explained by the slow growth rate of the occluding plaque, option E. When a plaque grows slowly, the body has time to develop collateral circulation that can form new blood vessels and continue to supply blood to the affected area, reducing the risk of ischemia and infarction. In response to chronic ischemia or hypoxia, vascular endothelial growth factor is upregulated to simulate the formation, stimulate the formation of new blood vessels from pre-existing vessels, increasing the density of the vascular network and improving perfusion. And then it gives a really eloquent explanation for why all of the other answer options are incorrect. Um, what's even more interesting is I then asked it to phrase the answer in a way that a fifth grader might be able to understand. And um, that's what we need for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually going to pull that up right now okay. on my ChatGPT account because <laughs> it, um, oh, well, unfortunately, its history is unavailable. But it basically said something to the, the effect of when there's a blockage of one of the major tubes that carries blood to the heart, um, new tubes can grow around it and compensate, basically. So is that a parrot? Or is that thinking? Is that reasoning? Um, well, uh, I used to babysit a parrot, when, so I'm thinking of <laughs> when I was a kid, Murph. And, and whenever the phone rang, he used to scream my name. Um, it, and I was like, it, I was just thinking about like putting things together. Well, to me, it, it's, uh, I guess it's, it's closer to, it's not parroting. I don't think, I mean, somebody else must have, nobody like plugged that into it. I, that's, that's tricky. Well, what do you think? I don't know. It's kind of, it, it's a little uncanny. Like I, I kind of get slight chills, you know, when it's like, Orville. You're right. <laughs> you watch <laughs> when all the AI models take over. I don't know if you watched Orville, but, um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, um, with the benefit of its cogent explanation, I think, yeah, this this seems sensible. This aligns with some mechanistic principles, how we think angiogenesis works, basically formation of new blood vessels. Um, but you really can't find that uh, explicit connection of concepts just by Googling the question, for example. I call these the ungoogleable 
questions, right? If That's you, true. and we, yeah. and we've done this experiment, actually, we have a publication that is uh, in preparation showing if you take these questions and give them to a English native speaking college educated student and give them unlimited, unrestricted access to a search engine, can they actually get the answer? And um, the perhaps not surprising finding is that ChatGPT does better than a human with unlimited access to a search engine. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that that I don't know. I'm not going to comment or editorialize too much more on that. I'm not going to say that represents reasoning. Uh, it certainly is not sentience. I mean, that is clearly not self-aware, but uh, it is um, gathering together threads of thought uh, from language that are not obvious to even some medical students. So the ability to kind of activate those knowledge pathways and teach us, I think, tells us something a little more profound about what these models are capable of. It's ability to simplify to the, I, know, I think the resolution on its level of simplification is up to two grade levels. So it clearly can do third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, ninth grade distinctly. Um, yeah, I've actually asked it to simplify it in the style of like a David Attenborough, like nature documentary, and it can definitely do that as well. <laughs> um yeah so uh wow um i'll get into like kind of like the philosophical stuff a little later you know like the uh, where where is this going right because that's kind of the the question everybody's thinking about like where is this going um but first so just going back to this your study here now you had two physicians ranking uh for accuracy concordance and insight and then if they didn't agree, you brought in a third physician to kind of be the deal breaker, the tiebreaker, sorry, not the deal breaker. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, that's exactly right. Um, and prior to bringing in a, a third physician, we actually would we actually finalize the analysis um, just so that there was, uh, we could actually report something called a Kappa inter-rater agreement coefficient, um, which is just a fancy way of saying, well, there we, we understand there's some subjectivity when humans rate these responses, but we want to know how how much agreement there really is. And um, it was actually quite high. And this becomes much more important for open-ended responses because there's a little more... Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's some more freedom uh, to interpret. But <clears throat> regardless of how we ran it, um, the agreement was very high. And so, and not surprisingly, when it was just a very close-ended question, agreement was almost perfect. Okay, so in order to pass the USMLE, it's it's sixty uh, percent. Is that something like that? Okay, okay. It varies from year to year, but yeah. um, over the last uh, five to ten years, it's been between fifty-seven and sixty-three percent is the passing band. Okay, okay. So, how did Chat GPT do? Tell us how it did. You want the raw. Uh, performance. No, no, no. You could just give us. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need so, confidence intervals or you know, like nothing like yeah. that. <laughs> We're a nerdy um, podcast, but not that nerdy. Um, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> random chance is twenty percent because uh, almost every question has five answer choices. Um, uh, a non-medical. I hate that. Like when there's like a million multiple. I just wish it was like three. I don't know. Oh, 
And I mean, a lot of uh, uh, medical training programs have done away with MCQs and they do uh, oral exams, you know. That's, I think um, that's, I like that. And, I've always liked, I always like essays and open, multiple choice. I, you have to, first of all, you have to be very skilled to write a multiple, a, a, a difficult multiple choice question because the way the brain can think or like, you know, come up with possibilities and then you're almost right for some of them too. So Anyways, that's a whole other tangent. <laughs> no, no, that's a true art. And um, yeah. in my other role as a professional medical question writer, I, I'm well aware of the cognitive effort that goes into that. Um, oh, I make bet. sure that things are bulletproof. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so there are three parts to the USMLE. Am I allowed to say why? <laughs> why is that? Um, but why aside, there's three parts. There's a step one. Yeah. There's step two and step three. It, it just never ends, really. Um, and uh, they get progressively more clinical. So step one covers sort of your preclinical kind of basic sciences, biochemistry, pharmacology, genetics, cell biology. Step two is diagnosis and management. And step three, um, which is taken usually after graduation from medical school, usually during internship, uh, is kind of a more nuanced version of step two, a little bit more um, complex cases. So for, on average, ChatGPT performed about 55%. Um, lowest performance was on step one, actually. Um, and I'll explain why we think that's the case. And then improved performance on step two and three to um, 60%. So hitting that passing threshold that we are uh, interpolating from previous year's data. Um so that's pretty good. We, yeah, it's shockingly good. Yeah. <laughs> and we're having this interview in March 2023. And since our results were published, there have been two additional <laughs> models. Um, uh, one of them is from Google. And that one is performing even better. Google, Google's AI or Google's virgin, version of chat GPT. Yes, one of their language models their called Palm. It Palm. just these letters. These letters is a it's an acronym salad, but Palm is a, a parallelized language model, which is kind of a a more robust version of a language model that has uh, more layers, so to speak, um, and it's performing even better on these exams across okay. the board. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think people, you know, when they hear Google, you're just Google itself is just a search engine because whenever you type something in, right, you have a medical issue, you type it into Google, all of a sudden, you know, you end up with like a brain tumor, right? No matter what it is, it's like always, um, it's, it, it, it's, it is, it's like, cause you have to do the, but this is like something that kind of summarizes that does all that work for you. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a really good way of putting it. Uh, yeah. Because I, I whenever, yeah. if I Google anything, if I'm like experiencing, you know, I don't know, tingling my right back. It's like, oh my God, brain tube, right? Right. Cause it's just, and the way we maybe internalize information and then our anxiety kicks in. And then all of a sudden it's like the worst one is what it is. So <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's like a long running joke in the tech world that it's becoming impossible to find things on Google anymore. <laughs> I, I can, I get that. Um, yeah. 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 And, uh, I don't want to endorse or, you know, uh, throw shade on any particular type of search product, but I 
I think that there's some truth to that. Um, and people are starting to look to Reddit um, and Reddit. in G- being GPT for more condensed, highly synthesized answers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody's on the topic. internet, so there's going to be a lot of information on the internet. <laughs> it's Which could ultimately be its undoing in a way. It's just going to become so, so, so crowded. I don't know. I, well, that's a whole phil- philosophical, you know, the pros and cons of this, but. Um, well, you know, they realized early, like, if you can control what we see first, you control the internet. You know, and that's. <laughs> but then in a way that's. also like a uh, lack of trust issue today too, where people, uh, and you have to, con- whenever you consider information, you have to consider like what a person individual's like trust factor is. So if they see certain websites come up, they'll be like, oh, conflict of interest or, oh, the government, you know, and then they start to look deeper and deeper. Um, so I don't know. That's super interesting, um, especially when talking about trust, because that's, I really want this sort of paper to be about trust ultimately, actually. <laughs> I was hoping the discussion might, um, you know, kind of gravitate in that direction. Although I think a lot of it has focused primarily on just the raw results rather than what the implications are for, can we trust these models? I think that's a huge issue. Can we trust them all? Yeah. Or if, and if you increase its responsibility, you're going to have to trust it more and more. Right. So that's, uh, that's interesting. It's absolutely interesting. Um, the, the discourse I think prevailing um, paradigm right now is can we use it to offload some of the more paraclinical administrative non-critical tasks, um, documentation relief, summarization, report generation, all those kinds of tedious tasks that, Boring you know, stuff that people don't want to do. Yeah, exactly. Because time is the most valuable resource in healthcare. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but I really think that to make the leap from, you know, this sort of administrative support back office function to actually assisting with patient care, that's the explainability gap. And what is our threshold for explainability? I recently was uh, invited to give a talk about explainability of these language models. And this was a really hot topic. And they are black boxes, truly. Um, by black boxes, it means you have an input and an output. And there's really no way to know how it got from A to B. We can sort of pry it open a little bit by using some of these prompting tactics, you know, with um, taking adversarial prompting or asking it to do this justification process. But at the end of the day, we still don't know how it chose that answer. So a large part of our research is is in this area of explainability and turning that black box into a little bit more of a less opaque. How's it doing what it's doing? How's it doing what it's doing? And, and when do clinicians feel comfortable? You know, when would a doctor feel comfortable using this model? Um, I know that, you know, a lot of societies and regulatory agencies are now convening think tanks to (laughs) come up with some kind of framework to understand um, how do we responsibly use AI if something goes wrong with a patient? Who, whose mistake is that? 
you know, and ultimately I think where it's headed is it's uh, individual onus. So you chose to factor in this data as a doctor and something went wrong with the patient. So that's your responsibility. You trusted the AI. Um, well, that's a lot of responsibility for a physician to hold, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. Um, so concordance and insight really quick. So, um, summary, how did it do there? Very well. Um, so for concordance, it was above 80%, 90%. Okay. Uh, the interesting finding with concordance is if it got the question wrong, it was most likely, it was more likely to have some contradictions internally. And what I mean by that is it might say, oh, the correct answer is antibiotic A. And then three sentences later, you might not want to do antibiotic A. And um, when the right answer is antibiotic B. <laughs> And this speaks to the probabilistic nature of these language models. It's really just waiting until the probability of the response hits a threshold that it can spit it out. And if it's not certain, there will be a lot of uh, vacillation and you'll see some of that, uh, the breakdown of logic in those answers. And insight, pretty good? Insight was, speaking just personally, I thought it was astonishingly good. Um, we actually developed an, a metric of insight called the density of insight. Uh, and it's basically how many new insights are there per sentence, essentially, or, you know, per paragraph. It, we kind of normalize the amount of new insights to length of the response. And when we look at that, every response teaches us about two or three new things. Um, either it brings a new connection that wasn't even contained within the question stem itself. It's a completely... Uh, it's a concept that's not obvious and it's from left field almost. You, you'd have to know the connection already um, and have that knowledge to invoke the connection. So I wrote in the paper that somebody who is studying for an exam, for example, that's dialoguing with ChatGPT would actually learn. Or if not learn at face value, uh, find a springboard to do further self-study. If they, Oftentimes. if they answered incorrectly, they would learn, but if they answered correctly, they probably wouldn't gain much insight. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's true. I don't know. That's a good point. Okay. I, yeah. I, just, the, I think I read that in your paper. I have it written down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, what's funny is that that you must be reading from the preprint and during oh, our reading yes, process, yes. we okay. actually reconsidered that point because we actually haven't. Hilarious. Leslie tested. Well, you read carefully. I did. <laughs> That's really impressive. <laughs> I underline, I read. Yeah, I do. <laughs> well, I yeah, thought yeah. It, like, it, it stood out to me because I thought it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I speculated too far on that sort of educational psychometric uh, sort of uh, approach, like how much could a learner learn at what base level? Yeah. Uh, the truth is we actually need to run head-to-head -head learner trials. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I, and I wanted to circle back to your point. Uh, it scored the lowest on step for accuracy on step one questions, but that mirrors what happens in real life, right? The people tend to score lower on that uh, portion, that examination, step one versus step two and step three. Wow. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And um, and in some ways, I think that was expected. Um, yeah. You know, when you look at the representation of those subjects on the internet, they're, they're underrepresented. And also, 
um, there's just a lot of conflicting information, for example, uh, you know, if, uh, if Professor A says, oh, this is how this pathway works, and then Professor B says, oh, wait, hang on a second, that may not be how it works, and then you then have 20 contradictory papers, um, it's no wonder that it won't really commit uh, to an answer with a degree of certainty. Um, and I think most people find those subjects to be more difficult. I, not, I, not, I think this is actually no, <laughs> this is objectively more difficult for medical students. And the other thing I thought, so PubMed has a GPT too. PubMed. Yes. And I, I, I did, I, did, yeah. I read your paper. <laughs> I it's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's scary. <laughs> but I thought, yeah, so, so. PubMed, right? Biomedical sciences, re, bunch of research you would think you know you might oh this this is the the nerdier one it's going to do better but that's not what happened that is not what happened and that's actually one of the striking observations and so percy lang's group at stanford developed a model called pubmed gpt which is basically chat gpt but instead of training the language model on the entire english internet it trained it just on pubmed which is our federal government's library of medical knowledge for peer-reviewed medical research thinking that this will crush the exam but didn't um it did worse than chat gpt so uh the difference between these models is one is called an a kind of expert model or domain specific the domain being biomedical science and chat gpt is a general purpose model so why would a general purpose model do better than a domain specific model still an unresolved question. Um, we speculate that it's because um, academic discourse is actually very, uh, very noisy. It's very messy. It's messy, yeah. Uh, it's extremely messy, yeah. Versus when you look at curated, sort of filtered uh, stuff on the internet, usually it's a lot more definitive. Mm -hmm. This is X, whereas if you read something written by an academician, um, well, you know, more we speculate cautiously that yeah, it's excellent. More research is needed <laughs> <laughs> because you don't want to say anything too definitive because you know it might be one study. You're waiting for other studies. It, you're uh, it's yeah, uncertain. Yeah. You say um, you elevate uncertainty and you don't necessarily take yeah. Like here's limitations of our study and you know you might not be able to re reproduce this result in such and such an environment. Yeah, so. Um. The conservative nature of that, yeah, of those uh, statements is, I think, what what leads to the lower uh, lower confidence, um, or you know, you might even just say an appropriately low confidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is there is an emerging strain of research in hybrid models, actually. So, well, if PubMed is too noisy. What if you took ChatGPT and augmented it with a truly curated resource like Dynamed or Clinical Keys or UpToDate, what would happen then? You see, like these UpToDate is, you can think of it as basically a cleaned up PubMed yeah. Yeah. that has a ton of human supervision on it. That seems authoritative. What happens if you reinforce ChatGPT with that type of data? So don't want to give this too much. This is where you get into property. like the reasoning question again, because a, a, a human going through PubMed could reason, you know, oh, this is a complicated issue, and 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 could could 
pick up on the nuance. And I guess that is the question here. How do you make something so sophisticated that it could do that? That's, that is the question. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a, like a cultural aspect too. Yeah. Of, I know what I'm reading this, that I should maintain some level of skepticism, right? This yeah. should be an upstream battle for the author. And how do you position an AI model to actually incorporate and and uh, operationalize that skepticism is fascinating. And you can. You can tune language models to various degrees of skepticism. That's um, one of the parameters that can be built in. <laughs> I mean, that's so. interesting. I mean, I wonder, too, how you could... And I think you see it a lot augmented with social media. Uh, you know, we see it in politics, but you can see it in, you know if you have a very strong position, scientific position that you're defending, and sometimes there's a bias there. And so this that that that's interesting to me to think about how you could, it, well, there wouldn't necessarily, there wouldn't be a bias with chat. I mean, it, it doesn't care, right? And that's the problem, uh, Dr. Eeks, that, and I, I want this to be maybe one of our parting thoughts because okay. I think it's a really provocative one. Yeah. Which is, so if I have a, um, a jar full of M&Ms and it's a massive jar and I want to know how many M&Ms are in there. I can ask, I can ask you how many M&Ms are in here. You might say there's 500. I can ask somebody else how many M&Ms are there. They might say there's 700. I go down the street. I ask 10 more people. Well, it turns out that mathematically, um, if you average out all those responses, you'll get closer to the answer than any other method. And there are certain assumptions about how that distribution looks and statistical assumptions, but that's a unavoidable theorem, basically. And so these language models, they are trained on a huge amount of popular voices, specialty uh, voices, expert voices. Okay. They are the ultimate center finding model, right? If you want to find out what is the consensus opinion in the world about a topic, plug it in to ChatGPT, and it will render what the average um, sort of uh, sentiment is about something. The viewpoint of experts are at the tail ends of those distributions, and they're, by design, diluted out. So the, extremes, the real question... The extremes are rooted out by design. The, right. The extremes are diluted out by design, because it's all a probability model, right? The next word that comes in this sequence is going to be based on the relative frequencies of what's in our training set, which is the internet. Okay. Now are more, is information weighted, you know, like from certain sources? It is. Okay. Oh, oh no, no. So uh, sources are not weighted, but okay. Um, okay. the attention to certain types of words or concepts in a phrase are weighted. And that's one of the fundamental innovations of this technology is how to weight and give attention to parts of sentences and words. But as in terms of um, do I take, you know, um, a uh, an article from the Atlantic more seriously than you know Joe Schmo blogger here? Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't no. do that. So it it goes it and it gives them equal weight. Right, equal uh -huh. weight. But um, with language produced by billions of individuals, there is going to be a center of mass there. Okay, I see. Okay. It okay. builds up in the center of mass and these language models, they operate on finding that center of mass, essentially. Okay. So we're talking about the bell-shaped curve, right? Am yeah. I... Okay. 
And I would argue that the real expert master clinicians, right? When you think about a master clinician, they're supposed to catch the zebras. They're supposed to catch the exceptions to the rule, mm. right? Ah. So ChatGPT can definitely tell you that these are the main complications of diabetes, but it can't tell you, oh, this is a really unusual one that you might want to think about. It's much less likely to find those sort of exceptions, both rare conditions and rare presentations of common conditions are going to be underrepresented in a language model. Okay. Okay. So it's not good at catch, catching the outliers or, okay. Okay. And, that, that, it's not. and that's where the art comes in, you know, it, it, in, in a lot of ways trying to, um, so my final question here, like as if <laughs> I think, uh, what, what is, what do you think the role of this is? And, you know, a lot of people are out there wondering, like, are robots going to take over one day for all of us? You know, AI robots or whatever. Um, are they going to replace some doctors? Are they going to, who knows? I mean, what what do you think? And what are you, like, and what are your ethical concerns too? Oh yeah, great. Last question in the last. There was like five questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's like five questions in one. I always do that. Yeah. Because I'm Irish, we just peep out. <laughs> oh, <is> that, okay. <laughs> it's the Blarney. <laughs> <clears throat> um, yeah, I made a joke uh, at at the conference recently. Like, I, I showed a picture of a cat kind of crawling out of a bag. <laughs> and I, this is where I really think we are, actually, with this. Because these really well-intentioned efforts to uh, regulate and understand explainability, like it's great. Like that's an amazing academic discourse and probably a necessary one, <laughs> but it's moving faster than we can actually understand it. And that <laughs> that's the- uh, There it is. There that is, is the, that is the, I think, uh, I can't quite put my finger on exactly what those cadences are in terms of knowledge generation and evaluation, but it seems like, before we've had time to fully evaluate one model, there's another one, right? Yeah, that's what, yeah. Technology is moving so fast and we're just, we're like a turtle, we're like crawling and the technology is just speeding to the finish line and we're just like, and, and, and you know, we, and even if we understand the technology, you have to understand the implications, right? And that takes time too, because you may not even, we don't know, you know, so. Yeah, you're asking questions that really probe the intersections of regulation, ethics, um, utility, popular opinion. Like, yeah, you might imagine a universe in the very near to intermediate future where language models are actually regulated by federal bodies like FDA. You need FDA approval to use, you know, Doctor GPT. Um, you need some kind of threshold of proof where there's a burden of, of proof uh, before actually bringing these into the commercial space um, or into direct patient care. But uh, that is one possibility. Um, there is also the individual accountability um, sort of line of uh, uh, deployment, which is, you know, you are responsible for any and all information that you use, whether that's AI generated or not. Um, I feel like that will be the default position, actually, just by necessity, because uh, <laughs> the pace of these um, models. And then there's always going to be the deep skeptics, you know, like these are really dangerous and, um, you know, 
and it seems to pass the Turing test. So it's too human and too, which I would actually argue that I don't think it matters that it passes the Turing test or not, because that's kind of an irrelevant question. The relevant question is, is it helpful or not? Um, is it helpful or not? Exactly. So I really start, uh, I'm, I'm going to put myself on a line here and stick my neck out, but um, it is time to start doing AI enhanced and also AI balanced clinical trials, um, whether it's with AI exclusively running an intervention arm or enhancing human in the loop. And I think that a lot of the um, scientific community is starting to move in that direction. You might have seen that you know, the New England Journal of Medicine, which is our kind of flagship medical journal, uh, just announced its first subsidiary journal, which is NEJM AI. And so starting very soon, that we'll be taking high impact submissions for this type of research. It'll be interesting to see how they recruit for those studies and who, uh, what yeah, sort of, what sort of things they uh, test. Yeah, I imagine there'll be baby steps. <laughs> and how small should each baby step be? Um, <laughs> I'm fascinated to yeah. be uh, paying really close attention to that. Yeah. Uh, or or maybe it's just big, big steps. Uh, but with really expeditious data safety monitoring boards that can do emergency unblinding and and you know stop stop trials immediately if something is going wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a glitch in the system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll tell you a funny anecdote about something I heard about Waze, which is a self-driving car. Yeah. When looking at whether humans should have the option to override or kind of be a co-pilot with the AI. An interesting and somewhat paradoxical finding was that by removing the passenger from the loop of command, passenger was actually much more confident and comfortable with the technology. It would be on edge and really trepidatious for a few moments, but after watching it make a few left turns and navigating some difficult intersections with aplomb, like, the passengers started to sip their coffee, started checking emails. So there's there's a bit of a, a kind of psychological kind of pop off there, right? It's it's um, if I spend some time with this system and it earns my trust, whatever that might be, then I just kind of let it, <laughs> I just kind of let it run. Um, and I think that's both kind of inspiring, but also scary. Yeah. It's uh, well, you think about like you think kind of about the precautionary principle, and there's always been that kind of debate, you know, with a new innovation, and oh, this is so great, this is neat, but then it's also the people, the people who uphold the precautionary principle more than maybe they are excited about the innovation. They're like, but wait, you know, let's not poke the dragon here. <laughs> um, it, you have to find a healthy balance there, I think. Uh, and it might have to be somebody in the middle, not somebody who's like so gung ho, like, yeah, let's get this new tech out there. And and maybe not so somebody who's like, you know, never leaves the front porch. But yeah, it's got to be somebody who's kind of in the middle. I don't know. I think you could have said it better. Gatekeeping. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better. And um, yeah, how how to be responsible, both in terms of promptly bringing products to market that can actually help patients because we know we have a healthcare access problem in this country and in the world, right? Yeah. 
medical knowledge and expertise is grossly concentrated in the hands of very few in major cities, in tertiary and quaternary academic medical centers, whereas the majority of the country and the developing world are, uh, they don't have access to resources and medical knowledge. At the same time, though, like you said, um, doing our due diligence with these uh, AI systems, whether they be language models or computer vision models or what have you that are in the in the pipeline. Yeah. Um, well, this was also very interesting. I actually want to do another episode because uh, I was reading about the AI robots and like people developing like relationships with it. I'm like, this it's, it's like it, AI is like this whole <laughs> post pandemic. Well, I guess we're still I don't know if we're still calling it a pandemic or not, but I mean, COVID is still around. I don't know what the consensus is on that. Maybe we should ask chat. Actually, that would be a good question for chat GPT. Is the pandemic still going on? <laughs> that would actually be a really interesting question. I'll, I'll, I don't have access to it now, but I'll, I'll prompt it. And um, I guess my last, one of my last thoughts that I just wanted to share this on a somewhat of a personal note is I recently read a story about AI driven kind of bed, uh, bedside sitter robots that can help elderly patients who might be suffering from delirium in the hospital or at high risk of falling. Um, these these robots supervise the patient and offer reassurances and reorientation to help them not get out of bed and kind of keep patients safe. I had really a mixed emotional reaction to that. You know, it was like one part of me saw the the wow, this is really efficient use of technology. I see the value. I see the patient safety impact. But the other parts, like you know, there's Granny and she's scared and alone in the hospital. And then there's this, you know, AI robot that's doing some of this bedside sort of what was traditionally kind of a warm touch role. And there was something kind of profoundly um, poignant about that contrast. And I still think about that, that story uh, every day. <laughs> so I only, I only mentioned that because you, you brought up the idea of relationships and whether, you know, humans can meaningfully participate in relationships with AI entities. And I I would say that the answer is potentially yes. And this goes to the whole Turing test thing. It doesn't matter how humanoid or human-esque the technology is. It only matters to just help somebody. I think that's true. I do. I, I appreciate you sharing that example, though. But I think about that, too. And, you know, I'm like, I, I think I'm biased in the direction where you can't necessarily replace like human touch or like the whatever it is that makes us human the you know uh the sum is greater than its part so what whatever that is spiritual soulful uh, you know i don't know but i don't know i don't think you can at least not right now replace that um that's my feeling but i agree also that like if somebody does find one of these relationships helpful um, everybody always talks about, you know, like the epidemic of loneliness and there's debate on that too. Like, you know, how do you define loneliness, lonely versus alone, but still, if it helps somebody get through the night, great. I mean, yeah, you know, I don't see the harm in that. Exactly. It's more of an aesthetic rebuttal, if anything, right? Like yeah. this violent, some core sense of our, uh, human care, nurturing, aesthetic but at the end of the day it seems to be doing a really good job in it it's indefatigable 
it's doing a better job than a paid human sitter could do because this thing is always sent it's always alert it's always um it's always uh there's no lapse in attention it's not looking at its instagram it's 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 right there yeah that's true too that's true i think that's good i think you made an excellent point like is it helpful yeah and then if it stops being helpful you don't have to use it anymore yeah <laughs> maybe the maybe at the core of this is we want to think we're very significant <laughs> so we don't <laughs> we don't want to be taken over by robots uh um you should uh check out a documentary called alpha go it's free on youtube it's from the google subsidiary called DeepMind, and they it's an older documentary but they built an ai um program that can play go and go is um orders of magnitude more complicated than chess the amount of possibilities and outcomes is just uh, vastly dwarfs the possibilities in chess. And it's a more, I think most um, game theorists and, and, and players agree that it's um, a harder game to master. And they basically had a competition where AlphaGo was facing off against Lei Seydal, who is a Korean Go grandmaster. You know, there's like 10 levels, one Don, two Don, three Don, he's nine Don. And so, you know, one in a million and a national treasure of South Korea. And he won. He he lost, you know, the first game, and the atmosphere in the room was ecstatic about wow we we've conquered this game. You know, we've built something that can do better than this undefeated champion. He lost the second game, and it was a little bit less applause, more muted response. He lost the third game, and it was like very somber actually. But then he won the fourth game with just a brilliant, completely inspired move a really organic, brilliant move that nobody could see, um, what they call a God move. And then everybody was rejoicing and cheering. It's like, oh, we, we hang on to something. And he was so humble. He lost the overall tournament, but he did say, I am sad that I lost, but I'm happy to have played this role in history. And maybe now that we have a, a program that can beat every person on earth at Go, we will finally understand how this game works. Because how Alpha Go works is by... Well, how human brain works to win Go is by capturing enemy territory, by surrounding it with stones. If you capture more territory, you win. Well, how Alpha Go wins is by winning. Those are two different questions. Oh, interesting. And when you think about medicine, I think it's similar. Um, we think that this is how we improve outcomes in heart failure. We take fluid off. We give these medicines. It aligns with some sense of how the biology works. But is that really how to treat heart failure? So, yeah. Yeah, that's 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 absolutely true. Victor, thank you so much. This was such, such a fascinating conversation. Um, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And I, you know, I know you mentioned you have more research coming out, and it, it's the best way to if people want to look you up. Is it Ansible Health? Is that what yes? Yeah, look me up at Ansible Health, and um, uh, you can contact me from from there. Um, I uh, am really appreciative of the time to talk with you and uh, I had a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. This is super interesting. Um, lots of questions. So yeah, yeah. and keep in touch uh, with some of your other studies that are coming out. I will, I will. You'll be uh, first in the sort of um, oh, yeah. like the, the gallery to see some of the preprints and, and 
yeah, we're getting we're getting roped into some interesting things. So <laughs> that's good. Interesting is good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's gonna be fun. Yeah, yeah. And it's the age of the preprint. I don't know if we're ever gonna go back to like you I mean right in COVID, everyone's just running with preprints. <laughs> I, I don't like I remember when we used to wait before, like for the whole peer review thing, but like now it's like and people don't necessarily know the difference between, you know, like this is a preprint and then this is actually published, but we're yeah. just pulling off the servers, like preprint, preprint, like <laughs> um that's actually a really great topic for a separate discussion in your in your you know because you're prolific so you, you cover I, everything. I have a lot of interest I don't know if I'm prolific but I'm, I'm all over the place anyways <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you know veracity uh and sort of a hierarchy of 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 scientific knowledge and new scientific knowledge coming out in preprints and publications is that, that's a Pandora's box it's crazy <laughs> yeah well you know we're we're all excited so um thanks again enjoy the rest of your afternoon and i will probably follow up on email um yeah awesome awesome okay cool thank you so much have a nice rest of your day you too bye-bye okay. bye all right everybody thanks so much for joining in for this podcast i feel like my voice got quieter as that podcast progressed and i think it's because my mind started wandering and contemplating all these potential scenarios for AI. And I was trying to decide if it was good or bad. Like basically I went to AI la la land <laughs> as my, uh, I had a teacher in seventh grade who used to say that like, come back from la la land, Aaron. I'm like, no, I think I'll stay there. Class sucks. Okay. But what do you think? Are you nervous about AI? Excited? Apathetic? Um, just want to post a selfie after this? I don't know. Feel free to let me know. Um, you could contact me in a variety of ways. Uh, it's pretty easy email, that kind of thing. Um, and now for the ending quote. For some reason, I'm thinking of MASH, uh, not just because I love that show. And I love that show. I love that show. It's genius. I quote from MASH all the time. Um, but for some reason, I'm thinking of this quote from Hawkeye. And he says, <laughs> um, he says, I wish someone would tear him down and put up a human being. All right. Well, anyways, I like that. It, it probably could relate to today's episode um, if you think about it. Okay, that's it for today. And hopefully I'll see you here next time. Bye, everyone.